Good morning. Good morning. What a beautiful, beautiful day it is out there. And uh, we think of the hurricane that came through yesterday and, and the remnants are still out there heading away from us. Uh, but I uh, just want to thank God for the safety of the, the people around here and uh, those that are still without power, which there are a few of them. And uh, so just be in prayer for, for those people as well. Um, we do have our, uh, our quarterly business meeting, our fall business meeting coming up on Thursday, the 28th of this month at 7 o'clock. And uh, not a lot to discuss, but uh, if you have anything that needs to go on the agenda, uh, please see Ian or myself, um, and that would be good. And we have uh, a couple of Bible studies that have uh, started in the last week or so. A lot of good things going on. So uh, if you're not connected enough uh, right now, all kinds of different places that, uh, that we could plug you in. So uh, keep that in prayer if that's something you're interested in. Any other announcements this morning? Yes, Miranda. Excellent. Excellent. Any th any other announcements this morning? Ian, did you have anything? Okay. All right. It's good to be here in the Lord's house today. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and for your mercy. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we thank you for watching over all of us uh, during the storm yesterday and and in some places, it was so much worse uh, than what we had. And uh, we pray that you would continue to watch over those uh, that are still in the eye of the storm, wherever it is right now, heading, heading up north someplace. We pray that you just watch over them. We know that, that you are in control of all things. And when the winds are raging and the sea is crashing and and the rain is coming down. You have each one of us in the palm of your hands. And we can take comfort in that no matter what is going on, whether it's a, a hurricane, whether it's a financial issue, whether it's a family issue. We thank you that we are in the palm of your hand. And we pray that you'd help us to remember that each and every day. We pray that you'd watch over our service this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through Ian this morning as he brings your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our call to worship this morning is found on the back of your bulletin. If you would like to stand with me, we will uh, read that responsively, and then we will turn to number 32 in your green book. Let's stand in for our responsive reading. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Israel rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Amen. And now if you'd turn with me to number 32 in your green book, How Blessed is the One. And uh, we know the tune to this, uh, Immortal Invisible. Covered. 
in a dry fevered land my sin i acknowledge my crime i address so i to the lord my transgression confessed oh lord you forgave me the guilt of my sin you washed my soul clean and you cleansed me within let godly ones pray while you lord may be found in floods of great water they dwell on high ground for you are my fortress my refuge from wrong and in your deliverance surround me with song amen you may be seated thank you And now if the uh, men would uh, come forward for the morning offering, and uh, if you are not a member, um, don't feel obliga obligated to give uh, this. But, uh, and uh, if you have any uh, um, special prayer requests, you can just put the, uh, the slip in the, in the uh, pew in front of you in the offering plate. Would you pray, please? try something a little different this morning uh, in a lot of churches um, when the scripture is read uh, everybody stands uh, in respect for the Lord's word so this morning our scripture reading this morning will be found in Genesis 2 starting with verse 4 reading to verses 24 and if you could stand with me, and I will read that, and if you would like to, you could follow along with me. So let's stand as we read God's word. Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. 
and the gold of that land is good. Medellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a, hel a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. And now if you would turn with me to number 686, we will sing, O God, our help in ages past. Amen. And present. Pardon? I don't know, probably. <laughs> stand through all of these uh, feel free to sit down for 343 amazing grace and let's sing verses 1 3 and 5 
Take some, take some time now uh, to go to the Lord together in prayer. Okay, let's go to the Lord together. Our Father and our God, we are grateful to come before your throne this morning, knowing that as we come before you, we're not coming to a God who is distant and unreachable. We are not coming to you as one who can in no way identify with us in our weakness. We are coming to you looking to Jesus, the Son of God, who is now seated at your right hand, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We look to him who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We look to you, Lord Jesus, the Son of God who walked among us, you who are able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, you who are able, in every, you who in every respect were tempted even as we are and yet without sin. And so we draw near with confidence to the throne, knowing that you love us, Father, having sent the Son, knowing that you love us, Lord Jesus, having died and been raised for our sake. We come near with boldness, knowing, Holy Spirit, you even are among us today. We thank you, Father, for your love, and we come boldly before you this morning. We confess as we come that to you, Father, all hearts are open. To you, all desires are known, and that from you no secrets are hid. We acknowledge and we lament our sins as we come before you this morning. We know you know them better than we do. And we confess, Lord, that we are grieved for our sins, that when we understand fully the reality of our sin and of your holiness, the burden of our sin is more than we can bear. And so we throw ourselves on your mercy, Heavenly Father. Have mercy on us for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us all that is past. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant to us that, that we'd be able to serve you and please you in newness of life that you'd make us new day by day, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus, to the glory of his name. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our, our sins before God.
Father, what a wonderful promise we have from your word in 1 Timothy 1.15, which says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in the words of 1 John 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we come into your presence this morning, that you would assure us of our forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, that you would change us as you wash us with your love. Convict us this morning to, this, as the, to the same degree that you have convicted us of our sin, convict us of your love for us in Christ Jesus and change us. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us on this beautiful day. We thank you for the sun and for the crisper air. And we thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us in passing over us in terms of the brunt of the storm. We ask your blessing over those who are still working to recover and those who still have power out. We ask, Lord, that you'd protect life. We thank you, Lord. Uh, as one person has written here, we praise you for the calm that always comes after the storms of life. We thank you, Lord, for the, the promise that the storms of life will not last forever, uh, but that there is a calm coming that will last forever. And we look forward to the day when we will see you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That here in this church, your, the power of your gospel would be felt daily in our lives. That we'd be living out uh, the, the power of your spirit as we walk in your love. We ask, Lord, that you would be at work not just among us, but also among those who we love who are not walking with the Lord that you'd be drawing them to you. And we thank you, Lord, uh, even, even for little signs that you may be at work there. And we pray, Lord, that over time you would answer our prayers and bring many into your fold. We thank you, Father, for your kindness to us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence among us. And we ask that as we continue through this service that you would fill us, that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word, that your words would be life to us. That as we read these, the word of God, which is alive with the spirit of God, that you, Holy Spirit, would make our hearts alive to your word as we read it and hear it and believe it. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Let's pray as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And the final song before the message is 526, The Solid Rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen to that. Let's stand and sing all four verses of 526 and sing it right out. Darkness veils his 
lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath is covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come, Righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. You can turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to start this morning. One of the lessons uh, we learn when we study church history is to see that in almost every age, almost every era of the church, there are pressures put on the church to compromise in one area or another. So, for example, uh, in, in the 300s AD, 300s, 400s, the big question at hand was the incarnation. And there was heretical Christian groups pushing against the Orthodox Church saying, uh, Jesus wasn't really God, And on one hand, and on the other hand, Jesus wasn't really a man. And it was in the cauldron of that conflict that the church had to, had to iron out and to stand on the word of God and say, no, the scriptures teach and the apostles taught that Jesus was and is truly God and truly man. And so if you want the best theology of the incarnation and of the Trinity, you look at some of those early centuries and it's hard to beat some of those church fathers as they're thinking through more carefully almost than anyone else these doctrines because that was the time during which there was so much pressure put in that area. And it's the same in almost every, uh, every time period of the history of the church. That in every era there's pressures. They come from different areas, sometimes within the church, sometimes without. But in different eras, the church is forced to stand its ground on different, uh, different points. And I would argue that one of the main pressure points in our own day, in terms of our understanding of the Christian faith, has to do with the area of what it means to be a human being. The area of, of humanity and human sexuality, what theologians would call anthropology. What we believe about the human person. Um, most people in our culture today, if you said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, they'd probably say, sure, fine, yeah. You believe what you want to. Sounds crazy to me, but who am I to say, right? You do you, because we live in a pluralistic culture. Um, but if you begin to articulate what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a human, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and the, the biblical definitions of marriage, well, if you state those things clearly, you may in our culture be accused of being a bigot or spouting hate speech. There is, there is pressure um, in this area, I think in a greater way than most other areas of Christian doctrine. And so that's why we're looking this morning at the final section 
of our church's proposed statement of faith, which is entitled, Of Humanity and Human Sexuality. And this is the one section that the deacons and I have added. So this statement of faith is based on a statement from the 1830s. Um, And in the 1830s, um, what this section states would simply have been assumed. That was not an area of conflict 200 years ago. It is today. And so the deacons and I uh, share the conviction that we need to be clear on these things as a church because this is an area where, where Christians, probably more than any other area, might be tempted to compromise in this age. Let's begin in prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing and help. Our Father and our God, we are aware this morning of our need for you. We, are know, we know that we are hungry and in need of true food from your word. We know, Lord, that we lack wisdom and we need your perspective. We know, Lord, that our hearts are deceitful and that we are sinful and prone to error. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant us clarity to see what is true in your word. We're sinners in need of grace. And so we ask as we come to your word this morning that you would show us Jesus, that you would show us the cross and the way to redemption. Holy Spirit, have your way among us this morning. Show us wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This section of the confession you'll find inside your bulletin. It's on the the back side of the bulletin insert if you want to follow along there. It begins like this. It says, we believe that man and woman were created in the image of God. And we can start just with this idea that man and woman were created. This in itself is a tremendous thing to be able to understand in our day. Uh, We live in a day where the, the question of the hour for most people is the question of identity. Of identity. You'll hear people throw out that word all the time. And basically, the, the question of identity is, who, a, who am I? Who am I and how do I know? Right? Who am I and, and how do I know? And we live in an age uh, of, basically, of self-identification, where the, the cultural gospel which has been preached for the last few generations is this, You can be whoever you want to be. You can be whoever you, you you determine who you are, right? In the words of that poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, right? It's the gospel of self-determination. And it sounds like freedom in a way, but you end up actually enslaving yourself to yourself. For a couple of generations now, that gospel has been preached, the gospel of self-determination. And what has resulted is a younger generation now that is more anxious than any generation ever recorded. Because we live in a generation now which does not know who they are. Because they've been told no one can tell them who they are because they have to figure it out for themselves. And it sounds like freedom, but it's actually a kind of a fearful place to be. Actually, the freeing teaching of the scriptures uh, is not that we have to invent meaning for ourselves, not that we have to invent an identity for ourselves, but that actually we were created in the image of God. First of all, just that we were created. We're not the result of random chance. We're not the product of chaos. We're actually, we exist as the result of a creator, of a designer with a purpose for us. We were created and created in the image of God. And this is what we're taught in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. We're told this, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in isolation, you kind of approach this verse, and you're like, well, what does that mean, made in the image of God? But read in the context of the rest of Genesis 1, it becomes very clear 
God is doing something very deeply special with the creation of humanity. Genesis 1 goes through and itemizes everything that God made. Right? He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the land from the seas and from the air. And he, he, he begins to fill these things. Right? He puts the stars and the moon and the sun in the skies and he, trees and animals, right? all these things. And at every point, God says, and that was good, and that was good, and that was good. And then he gets to humanity. And to humanity alone is given this title. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman are created here as the, as the pinnacle of creation. And then they're given authority and a task. This is verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He creates man and woman and he basically he makes them kings and queens. He says, here is this world that I've made. Have authority on it. Rule it. Take this beautiful world that I've given you and make something of it. And that I think is at the core of this idea of the image of God that we are we are God's vice regents, that we've been put on this earth as emissaries of the high king. We bear his image, right? Like a Roman coin bears the image of the emperor, right? And wherever it goes, it says, the emperor is king. We are God's image bearers. And everywhere we go, we say, the Lord is king. And we're meant to steward under his rulership. And this means every human being is an image bearer of God. And if every human being is an image bearer of God, every human being has inherent value and dignity because to be a human being is to be a very glorious thing. A very glorious thing. Um, Psalm 8 describes it this way. This is a psalm we sing on occasion. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's the idea of kind of our lowliness, right? David's looking up to heaven and he's saying, whoa, I'm so small. And then, but he doesn't stop there. Verse five, yet you have made him, you've made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings, a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. The image literally here is of a crown, that humanity has been crowned with this kind of glory and honor. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you think of the people around you in that way? This is, this is uh, if any of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, or at least the Lion, which in the wardrobe, the land of Narnia is a land with mostly it's animals, right? It's these talking beasts. And then when the Pevensey kids show up, right? Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, they're human beings and they come into the land of Narnia and, uh, and all the animals greet them with great honor because they say, oh, you are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? And eventually they're installed as kings and queens of Narnia, right? Because their lineage from Adam and Eve actually entitles them to actually a kind of royalty, a kind of glory. And the reason Lewis wrote that about the land of Narnia is that he understood from Genesis 1 and from Psalm 8 that it's actually true on planet Earth. That all of us, just by virtue of being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, have this inherent value and dignity. We also carry along with us a kind of shame in being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve too. That's not our point this morning. By way of application, this means that we ought to value human life in all its stages. The confession says this, as such all human beings possess inherent value and dignity from conception into eternity. Every human life we touch is an eternal creature. And we ought not to downplay the value of any human life. 
This is why Christians are opposed to abortion. We believe that even in that, that beginning stage, this life is valuable as an image bearer of God. This means throughout human, human life, Christians are opposed to murder. Right? And God actually lays out this command for the first time in Genesis 9. He, he forbids murder and insists that there must be punishment for murderers. And his reason is because we are image bearers of God. That's the explicit reason given in Genesis 9. And not just at birth, but throughout human life, we ought to see every person around us as an image bearer of God, even the lowliest, even those we may be tempted to scoff at, are image bearers of the high king. And this is true even, unto, even to death. This is why Christians continue to hold an ethic of life even as f some folks and countries are, assisted f are um, advocating for physician-assisted suicide, right? It is not up to us to decide questions of human life. We leave that in the hands of Almighty God. All human beings possess inherent value and dignity from conception unto eternity. We could say so much more along these lines. Um, if you want to hear more about the image of God, I preached on Genesis 1 like a year and a half ago, and you can find the sermon on the website, scroll back far enough, and we went into depth, went into a lot of depth on that. Um, but for now, the, the one thing I want us to see here is the glory of being a human being. It's an incredible thing to have been created by God and put in this earth. It's a wonderful, it's a glorious thing. We should have that understanding both for ourselves and for those around us. Well, the confession goes on, and not merely to speak about humanity generally, but about human sexuality specifically. And, and we start with marriage. We believe that marriage has been instituted and defined by God. And we, we start with marriage because marriage is God's design for human sexuality. We believe that marriage has been instituted and defined by God. Again, there's a parallel here. Humanity was created by God, and so he gets to define who we are. He gets to tell us we're image bearers. And not only have we been created by God as human beings, but also human sexuality is also to be ordered according to his design. We have a definition of marriage here. We believe that marriage has been instituted and defined by God as a binding covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and then we list three purposes for marriage. It's not an exhaustive list, but these are three purposes that are scriptural. We see the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, in the passage that Kevin read earlier, um, with the creation of Adam and then of Eve, and that at the end of Genesis 2, when, when Eve finally comes to Adam, you can hear the relief in his voice, right? The man said, this at last. <laughs> Right, after watching all these animals go by, and he's like, yeah, I'd kind of like a dog. That's my, that, that might be my best friend, but I, I need something more. Right? And he sees Eve and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the, the commentators on that passage see in that phrase, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, actually covenantal language. Okay, this, this rhymes with some of the covenantal language used by ancient cultures. So that, that here... Adam and Eve are actually entering into a marriage covenant with one another. Marriage instituted, defined by God, as a binding covenant relationship between a man and a woman for three purposes that are listed here. First, for their mutual benefit. We've already seen that in Adam, right? Ad Adam's pretty lost without Eve probably most of us here who are husbands have that sense, right? I'd be pretty lost. Um, God, when Adam was alone in the garden, made the evaluation. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he institutes this relationship of marriage as the fundamental building block of human society. There's mutual benefit in marriage, but not just that. In some ways, what our society has done today is to boil down the purposes of marriage just for 
mutual benefit. Say, well, what, what, why would you get married? Well, because it'd probably be helpful for both of us, so we'll, we'll do it, right? And if, if that's your only criteria for marriage, you've actually lost a lot of the richness of God's full design. It's not just the convenient arrangement, right? Um, it's rich with purpose and with glory. For what purposes? Their mutual benefit also for the procreation and nurture of their children. And this goes back to Genesis 1 and the, uh, the creation mandate. After God creates man and woman in his image, what does he say? God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, right? God gives Adam and Eve to one another. And not only does he say, you're image bearers of God, but I've actually given you everything you need to create more image bearers of God. Like, this is incredible. It's like a superpower. And he gives it to man and woman. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Create communities and towns and families and cities and civilizations. It's an incredible gift he gives them. In Malachi chapter 2, the Lord chides the men of Israel for their unfaithfulness to their wives. And he invokes this idea of the, the, one of the purposes of marriage actually being the procreation of children. He says this, uh, is Malachi 2 and verse 15. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. This is one of the purposes of marriage is the procreation and nurture of children in the Lord. We, would, we should be careful to say um, that the Lord does not grant children to every married couple. We see this biblically. This is a theme in the patriarchs, right? A theme of, of, of barrenness. We understand um, God's, um, every man and woman when they enter into marriage should be open to the possibility of children, but also surrendered to the fact that it's the sovereign God who holds these matters in his hands. Right? And um, God does not open the womb for all women. And this is a great grief, and it's a great trial. Um, but we can trust the kindness of God even in this. Three purposes. Again, this is not exhaustive, but these are three important things we should understand. Their mutual benefit, the procreation and nurture of their children, and finally, the showing forth of Christ's love for the church in the husband's loving headship of his wife. Here we can turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, there's a lot in this chapter on the, uh, on the question of marriage that we won't be able to get into. Um, but the main thing I want us to see is that actually from the beginning of creation, marriage has always been a parable, a picture of Christ's love for the church. Christ's love for the church. So Ephesians 5 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul quotes a verse we've already read from Genesis 2. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he explains. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Earlier in the passage, he says this, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The picture here in Ephesians 5 is of husbands who sacrificially lead their homes with the love of Christ, who give of their very selves for their wives and for their households as a picture of the love of Jesus Christ. And according to the Apostle Paul, this isn't just a fancy interpretation. He's not just saying, this is a nice analogy. He says, this is actually baked into the design. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And so, I want us to get a sense of the glory here, of the wonder of this. Not only that we're surrounded by image bearers of God, glorious creatures, but also that, um, that those of us who are married 
are married to one of these eternal glorious creatures and that this marriage covenant has existed from all creation as a sign of God's love, of Christ's love for the church. This is God's purpose and intent in marriage. The showing forth of Christ's love for the church and the husband's loving headship of his wife. And so, in the first place, what I want us to get a sense of in both of these things is just of the glory, the glory of being a human being, of the glory of marriage as something to be held up, as something to be protected, right? This is a, this is a wonderful thing. The final statement of the confession says this. We believe that any expression of human sexuality outside the bounds of marriage is sin and fails to realize God's good design. We grieve when glorious things are broken or marred or distorted. Um, I can remember in elementary school, I had a matchbox car that I really loved. It was a red sedan. Uh, and I don't know where it came from, but I remember having it through my whole childhood. It was, it was great. What I loved about it was that the front doors opened and closed. You could like, it was very small. You couldn't really fit anything in there. But the, the doors opened and closed, and that was really cool. And I brought it to school one day. And I can't remember exactly what happened. Uh, I gave it to my friend on the bus. I still remember his name. I won't tell you his name. Um, I gave it to my friend on the bus. And I can't remember if he just had it for a moment or if he held on to it for the day. I'm not sure. But when I got it back, both doors had been torn off. And he, I don't know if he'd stepped on it or what, but the, the, like the roof was all caved in and all the paint was scratched up. And... Uh, uh, I must have been like second or third grade. I think I went home and cried. <laughs> because this, this glorious thing had been distorted, had been broken. And I grieved. That's a very small example of this kind of thing. What we're talking about in terms of God's design for humanity and for human sexuality is many degrees more glorious than this. Um, and what we're saying here in this last statement is that when we deviate from God's design for human sexuality, um, in a way we do a kind of violence to God's good design that should cause us to grieve. And this is, this is sin. And um, basically from the first chapters of scripture, people are distorting this fundamental relation of man and woman in marriage. Um, deviating from God's design for human sexuality isn't new. It's been happening from, from the, basically from the fall. Um, one of the first things that scripture addresses in terms of deviations from God's design here is the question of adultery, which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. And we should understand it's a, um, well, another thing that the Lord teaches in Malachi 2 is that when a man and woman are given to one another, there's actually a portion of the Holy Spirit given in between them. It's God who knits man and woman together. Right? We say this in the traditional marriage vows, right? They whom God has joined together, let no one separate, quoting Jesus' words. And so that unfaithfulness from that marriage bond um, is a great and a grievous thing. Um, this would also address the, the biblical concept of of uh, fornication, which would be any, any kind of sexual activity outside the bonds of covenant marriage. God has given us this idea of marriage covenant as a, as a protective mechanism, right? It's a very tender thing for two people to give themselves to one another in this way, and then to open up the possibility of children. And so the Lord has given us this protective mechanism of, of that kind of activity must be protected under covenant vows to people actually giving themselves to one another. Um, this covers what has been become a ubiquitous thing in our culture, which is uh, internet pornography. Um, again, this is a form of sexual activity which is outside the bounds of marriage. And it has broken many homes and many hearts. This covers also uh, the question of homosexuality, which is again ubiquitous in our culture. Um, but God's design is for a man and for a woman, for a 
fruitful union of marriage. And um, in a number of places in scripture, God makes clear that homosexual unions are not in line with his design for human sexuality. This would also cover, I think, the question of um, transgenderism, which has come to the fore in our own day, um, where um, particularly young people are being lured, first of all, to question whether it's good that they be a boy or a girl as God has made them, um, but also some of them lured at quite a young age um, to what functionally results in castration, either chemical or literally physical, um, the literal removal of those organs which would make them fruitful in marriage. Um, and the result is quite brutal to children as young as 14. And so this is a deep grief. And the hope in all of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope in all of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason we need to have a clear understanding of these things, and not just of these things, but the reason we need to have a clear understanding of the nature of sin generally um, is what Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6. He's warning the church here. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Basically, what he's going to say is, guys, do you understand, if you go on in rebellion against God without repentance, if you go on in sin without turning to Christ, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice Paul is an equal opportunity employer here. He's, he says all kinds of sin. He says, if you go on continuing in sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then a word of hope, right? He doesn't just stop there. He says, verse 11, such were some of you. He's looking around at the Corinthian church and he's saying, that, that was us before Jesus. Each one of us was walking in sin. And the call of the gospel is to repent and believe, to turn from that sin and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And the offer is there. That's the great hope of the gospel. And so, one of the reasons we, we must be clear on these issues is that our call as Christians is to continue the call of the gospel, to call ourselves first and then those around us to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, it does a great disservice to our neighbors. That's an understatement to refuse to call them to repentance. Such were some of you. Maybe that's you this morning. <laughs> You've been convicted by something here. Take hope. Such were some of you. What does Jesus do with sinners? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were all of us walking in darkness, condemned under the weight of our sin. And then, as John the Baptist pointed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what happened to us? We got a glimpse of Jesus. We got a glimpse of his love and he called us out of the darkness and into the light, calling us back to his design for humanity, back to his design. This is what, this is what the Lord talks about in the scriptures when he talks about our being conformed to the image of Christ. He's remaking us, calling us out of the darkness of the old humanity into a new humanity to make us new. And so that's the gospel message 
all of us need to hear every day, maybe hourly to preach to ourselves. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm looking to Christ. I'm turning from that old way. I'm turning to the new way. I'm turning to Jesus, looking to him for my forgiveness, for my washing, for my sanctification, for my justification. Lord, make me new. And the glorious picture we receive in the final pages of scripture is of a new humanity. The Apostle Paul talks about it in terms of the first Adam and the second Adam, right? We're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and that's a great glory. It's also a great shame because Adam and Eve marred the image of God when they turned from God. And all of us walk both in that glory and that brokenness. But the hope of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God is making us new and he's bringing to life a new humanity in Jesus. We're being conformed no longer to Adam, but to Christ. We are in him. And we groan in that remaking. We are certainly not perfect yet. At least I'm not. Maybe you are and I'm just unaware of it. God's making us new day by day. And, and one day when we see him face to face, we will be even as he is. And we will dwell there in, in the new Jerusalem with a new humanity. And we will live with him in joy there forever. And that is a great hope. Amen. Um, That's the end of our series through the church's confession of faith, proposed confession of faith. I'd encourage you, if you have questions or, or thoughts on this section or any of them, that you'd please talk to me or talk to one of the deacons in the coming weeks. Uh, we're hoping to uh, solidify a final version of this that we can put together along with a couple of um, minor changes to the church's constitution so that we can put all that in a packet and have it in front of you for you to look through. So hopefully we can do that in the next couple of months. And, uh, and Lord willing, we can move this timetable if we need to, but Lord willing, we're hoping to have uh, an affirmation from the congregation on these things, hopefully in the new year. Um, so stay tuned for that and be in prayer for that process. Um, we're, we're, um, we're, we're praying that the Lord would use this as a, uh, as a process that would bind us together and ground us together in the word of God, which is our only firm foundation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a glorious thing to be an image bearer of God. What a glorious thing now to be sons and daughters of God, being conformed to the image of Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would bind us to your word, that it would be our firm foundation, that you would bind us to your design, that we would see that it is good, that in our own lives you would grant us repentance in those areas where we need to turn and healing in those areas where we are broken. And we ask, Lord, too, that you would make us bold and kind as we share the gospel of Jesus with those around us, um, that we would be pointing people ever to the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, um, and giving that call which leads to life, which is repent and believe. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness you've offered us, for the healing you hold out to us, and for the eternal life, which is our hope. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand together, and we'll praise the Lord in the words of the doxology as we conclude. Praise God from whom.